0: You're about to hear my conversation with Omay Sadi. We talk all about his upbringing in the Ivory Coast and how that shaped how he approaches investment management as a whole, how he thinks about buying businesses, what he thinks is important in management, and also where he's excited to find opportunities. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schneer and I'm delighted to be here with Ome Sadeed. Ome leads the international investment selection for the Global Equity and Income uh, boutique here at McKinsey. He is also the lead portfolio manager on the McKinsey International Dividend Fund. Ome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's nice to be here. I thought I'd start by uh, asking you specifically about your background, Ome. Uh, when I think about the investment management business as a whole, I think it's one of the most competitive businesses in the world. And what that means is that the benchmark, or what you're trying to be, is often very efficient, fairly accurate. And your job is to be different than that. Uh, And one of the the things that stands out about your background of being very unique compared to a lot of your peers is that you grew up in the Ivory Coast. Why don't you tell me a little bit about growing up in the Ivory Coast and what you think that that has brought to your investment management decision in the way that you think about markets in general. Thank you, Matt.
1: Growing up in the Ivory Coast, um, there are so many lessons. Um, The first is, it was incredibly multicultural. So it was a hub for people from the region in West Africa who came to Ivory Coast in search of a better life, a lot of merchants. It had the biggest port in the area, and it was welcoming. A lot of countries are not easy to access foreigners. And so you lived in a place that was incredibly cosmopolitan, incredibly multicultural. And so you were always dealing with different um just ways of moving and you were familiar with different ways of communicating. And it might seem more nuanced, but like a Senegalese merchant versus a Nigerian merchant, you might negotiate differently. right? right. And, and, and and if you think about what I do now being an international investor, while I'm dealing with a German manager and then a British manager and a American manager, while they might say the same phrase, but for a German, that's incredibly aggressive, meaning, because they tend to be modest. If they say something positive, it means a lot right. versus the American who's like ultra promotional, think Dana White of the UFC. And sure. uh, you have to tone it down, right? But you learn to hear people and understand a bit of that nuance. Um, there are other things. It was incredibly stable, but then uh, we had a civil war. And mm-hmm. so it was interesting to see, you know, in these kind of unstable environments, when it re. Uh, positions your view on risk, right, at a very fundamental level, political risk, geopolitical risk, economic risk, business risk, um, understanding human nature a little bit better. Um, You saw what the people who are entrepreneurs did to make money. So, you know, with instability comes opportunity. Um, And, you know, it makes you a little more resilient, right, that you realize you can navigate through so many things, right? So in terms of competitive advantage, I think growing up in that environment, you know, one, it's, it's it's curiosity, right? I got into investments because I I wanted to be a businessman and I wanted to build businesses in Africa. So I started studying Western businesses. And then right. as I started to do it and I was an entrepreneur in university, you know, I found out that you could read their, uh, well, in high school, I figured this out. They're publicly listed. Uh, and so their annuals were available. Then I started to say, okay, well, let's see how Coca-Cola makes money versus JP Morgan. And then you realize, oh my God, Coke is so much more profitable than the bank, right? Right. And so on and so forth. So that's that's the curiosity. But growing up in Every Coast and seeing the inequality there, whether it was the opportunity set for women at the time, it's improved a lot. Um, people really could make a difference because you'd go to another country and everything you saw that existed, you know, hadn't yet arrived, right? And so you you felt like you could do it. And but that's how hmm. I kind of stumbled into investments. Starting to look at these companies and being an entrepreneur, I had a little uh, savings and I started to invest them. And just by luck, I got into the business. And and, and if I was to go further, another differentiation there, like I mentioned, dealing with different kinds of people is the ability um, to develop relationships. Right. So I have been able to develop relationships with company managements, with experts in the field, um, with famous investors. Right. Who spend time with me to no benefit to themselves, right? Like people you would know though I don't want to name drop. And I think, you know, I probably already had what I like to call the sight, like a photographer, right? Kind of an intuitive sense of perceptiveness. Um, and with training, it gets better, right? Without its right. use, it deteriorates. And I think when you get that exposure, Either from the people you work with, mentorship, people who are kind to you, um, they can really greatly accelerate it uh, by showing you dimensions you didn't know, models for different things from human behavior to economics to macro to physics, Um, and then you, you know, you you marshal all these mental models into you know how you kind of the lens you take to being an investor. So I think it was incredibly uh, valuable.
0: That's great. Um, I want to pick up on at least two strands uh, from things that you just uh, spoke of it there. Uh, one, the risk, which I'll come back to. But you, you mentioned you were an entrepreneur. Uh, what were you doing as an entrepreneur, Ome? And, and tell me a little bit about that story. And, and I guess it combines with school somehow, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I, I mostly did it in school because when I was leaving school, I actually took a job at an asset management here, a firm here in Toronto. I actually took a pay cut to take this job, right? Okay. Uh, I, I told them that too, and they, they quite laughed, but they didn't raise my <laughs> money, so whatever. <laughs> it was worth it. Um, I had a couple of businesses. I, had a, I did engineering and commerce, so electrical engineering. Okay. And what I did, so I kind of looked at negative working capital was kind of the most important thing. I didn't really, at the beginning, have that much money that I wanted to sink into anything. I started the bartending business where okay. we taught bartending, but I, I now can make cocktails. I couldn't make them then. Um, okay. I just hired bartenders. And what I would do is I would go and do the marketing, the business development. I would, you know, go and get the the way I, I did the marketing was I got the most popular people, think mm-hmm. fraternities, sororities, athletes. I got them to sign up by discounting or offer for free these things, specifically the the sororities and and, and the athletes. And then I would get the frats who basically dictated to their juniors to pay so they could make drinks at their parties. And once you had the cool kids, all these other people came in. And the way it worked is they prepaid at the beginning of the semester. And so I already knew my income and all I had to do was work backwards to build a program at, that was affordable. You know, another cool thing I did is it was possible to get access to off-campus um, venues right if you were a, a student organization right so what i did is i kind of priced out the best kind of opportunities in terms of venues and then i partnered with a student organization giving them some equity in exchange and then it made my cost base completely variable right and, and it made a big business i was making six figures right a year uh with that business and then the other business was a uh, database uh, management and okay. there it was an arbitrage because Being an engineer, um, I knew coding, I knew this, it's kind of basic stuff. But I basically went and got a a friend of mine who was a PhD candidate, eventually a a brilliant guy, brilliant guy, he placed Mm -hmm. number one in his country for math in Nigeria. And he ended up working at Microsoft. So I said to him, hey, I'm gonna go knock on these young, like small SMEs and tell them that their, their database people are screwing them, right? Like, you know, they don't use fancy stuff. But what would end up doing is if they had a project that they needed to put together, the, the 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 companies, the service providers would charge them too many hours, right? I see. So they would inflate the number of hours in the budget. And then if you think of the distribution of value add that they did, it's almost like a lawyer who charges you for a contract, a thousand an hour, but it's a contract that sits in the library, right? So what right. I could do is I could actually give them the real uh, number of hours, right? Because my labor pool was basically, I went and I got the grad students who were hungry, right? right, And then the PhD got kind of oversaw the kind of promises that I could make in terms of timeline and meeting their hurdles. So I just had to bring them in and say, give us a shot. We'll do it at this price. This is the real hours. And here's the workforce. This kid was brilliant. And so like, I could get references once we got a few kind of test cases that we did for free. And, um, and then we would, you know, marshal the, 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 the grad students to do the work. Um, but, but because of that distribution, even at their rate, they were making more money than other things they could. It was piecemeal, so people right. could come in and out and pick the jobs that they wanted to do, like a job site. And, and, of course, you know, there was an area under the curve for us to capture. So sure. we did that, too. So that did really well. So those are the kind of things I did when I was in school. But, again, you don't need any money to knock on doors,
0: Right. Totally, um, that's a, that's a great quote. Um, so fast forward through uh, through school, uh, you you take the the pay cut to join the uh, the asset management business. Um, tell me where you sit now. How you think about markets? How you think about uh, finding opportunities? Finding companies that you're looking to invest in? So that's all we do, right? That's all we think
1: about how to be better at that. So. Our job is to find the best companies in the world. We're high-quality investors. And so at a high level, there are three kind of things that pop out to us, right? There's things in the news, right? Um, sure. It could be a variety of things, but you know, you you kind of like, okay, this is interesting, and you go down this rabbit hole. There's corporate actions, right? When a company does a corporate action, whether it's a merger, a spinoff, share buybacks, whatever it might be, or restructures um, something... Especially if it's industry-leading, it can often point to an inflection point for these industries. So corporate action can be a trigger, but the okay. most lucrative source of opportunities for us is uh, knowledge of the industry, right? So mm-hmm. you build this base and you're always looking for the best companies in the world. Um, so that's one way we do it. And so the way I would describe it is if I look at the world and if, if I see things that don't make sense... There's an opportunity to make a lot of money or lose a lot of money, right? Um, I think I've given the story of, of Maotai and how, you know, they raised relative prices in a recession, but their volumes were plus six when the rivals were negative, And the banks were financing at a hundred cents on the dollar, which is you couldn't get for a Monet. And all these right. things together made us do more work. And we ended up, you know, it was the most profitable investment in this, uh, in this fund, in the global dividend fund, um, but even another company called Admiral is an insurance company. And you know, I was doing a screen, and I was like, okay, why does it make these kind of returns on equity? It's an insurance company. So either that's not sustainable and is a one-off thing, in which case, you know, it's it's a risk, but it's something that doesn't make sense. You need to figure it out. But I ended up figuring out why they were able to sustain it, and so we made a lot of money owning Admiral. Uh, for a long time. And it was just because it didn't make sense. And you see that again and again and again. Hmm. Another thing I'll point out is I have, if you do this long enough, you do meet CEOs who are frauds. And one of the key signs of that is when you see one of these things that do not make sense and you keep digging and they don't make sense, and then you meet the CEO and he can't help you make sense of it, run. Right? Like the proportion of those that were actually either end up bankrupt or they were actually frauds, is the, it's very high, right? It's it's not sure. like 50%, but like it's high relative to the number of things we look at. Um, so what do we actually look for? Great business models, great managements. Um, you know, when you think about great managements, a lot of people try and discount it because it's so nuanced, right? They wanna just compare PEs, right?
0: Yeah. But
1: um, we look at inside ownership, we look at alignment, we look at corporate culture, um, fundamentally we want to understand who they think long-term. And if you think about CEOs who do, you know, there's uh, Bob Iger of Disney. He's well-known, but if you really think about what he did, he bought Pixar and used the engine of Pixar to reinvigorate Disney animation, right? Right. And then he did all these other deals to scale. Like he took a direction and took a chance, right? And then with Disney Plus again, so this is a guy who really, really knows how to be an intelligent risk taker. There's another holding of ours called DSV, where the CEO, Jens Anderson, you know, he built a platform to be able to execute things that people had been talking about doing for a long time, right? He bought a company called Panalpina, which was built out of integrating all these, uh, out of acquiring all these assets, but they were never able to integrate them. And he showed how that could be done, right? He reimagined how that business could be done. And 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 he's... Uh, He's not as well-known, but I, I'm telling you, man, in a few years, when they make those lists of Harvard Business School best CEOs, he's going to be on it, right? And we met him, I remember, I think in 2015, I came back from Denmark and I told Darren, I met the best CEO I've met since I can't even recall, right? Right. Um, and, and, and to come back to the Ivory Coast point, you know, when you think about finding companies, you really do want to get knowledge of the industry. So I spent time with Jens Anderson. I met the division managers. I met all the rivals. I already knew the industry, but... Case in point, just yesterday I uh I spoke with the CEO of a family controlled business um in emerging markets. You know, one that I thought could be an acquisition target for for one of our holdings. Okay. And and think about that, right? Like I'm in Toronto, it's a private company. The person, you know, he he's a billionaire and you know, he doesn't really talk to public markets guy, he's private, right? He talks to private equity guys sometimes because he's raising money doing different things. Sure. And you can't access him using Goldman or GLG or these service providers, right? Right. So how do you get that, right? Well, that same thing that I said before where I was fortunate to have people, even like successful investors, spend time. Well, that ability to relate to people, right, to get managements to open up, but even to get people who are private, they have nothing to gain by talking to you. Right. Right. But they do it anyway, because of the introduction and at the end, he said, hey, I like you. You know, I learned about this. I actually ended up telling him about uh, a Norwegian company that he had <laughs> never heard of. And he's like, oh, I'm really fascinated by this. So we're going to talk about it. But the point is, he 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 then was able to explain how that might make sense for another of our holdings to buy them. Apparently, they had approached him a few years ago to buy them. There's nothing live now. So there's nothing like uh, sensitive, you know but they had been approached. So my sense was right. You see what I mean? But think about the fund managers who were like, okay, how am I going to get in touch with this? Is it worthwhile to know why haven't they bought this? Why wouldn't they buy this? Right. And, and it's Sunday, it's Easter, but you know, uh, we're doing it.
0: So it sounds like uh, a lot of uh, depth of research is important. Um, You're, you're, using a lot of the characteristics in the data to see what stands out either good or bad and trying to make sense of it. Uh, and then uh, the point that I wanna maybe ask a little bit more about is is keen in on management and how you judge management. You talked about, uh, I think you referenced two CEOs uh, that you admire that have done a great job. Um, really, as you pointed out, really easy to see the Harvard Business uh, Reviews, they have an easy job. I mean, who's done really well over the past five years? Great, write them up. Uh, you have a much more difficult job. You need to find those people five years uh, from now who are going to be on that list. Uh, what characteristics do you find in CEOs that either make them particularly uh, good, particularly good MA people, or, or, or what do you look for in, a, in management? Yeah. Um. There's a book called The Outsider, which I highly recommend to the audience
1: that touches on this. It's very fam- it's a famous book. But you know, like one of the many things that stood out about, for example, the DSV CEO was they had a headquarter and they could have built a nicer headquarter in Copenhagen, but they stayed at it, and they built it on top of one of their key uh uh, hub points, right? Because they do transportation. They started as a truck transportation company, and now they're the largest transporter okay. in, in in the world. I think, well, number two. And um, he built it over this, right? And it's an open plan concept. And he said, and I asked him about this, and he said, we want to be close to our trucks and our people, right? We don't want to put a distance between HQ and 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 them, right? And mm-hmm. and and then while we were there, our meeting ended, but he wanted to spend more time. And uh, it's very democratic in, in, in Copenhagen. And a junior came in and the CEO is there and she was like, oh, excuse me. I have a meeting, <laughs> right? And it was a meeting of just juniors, right? It was like three juniors coming in and she put sure. in the CEO, right? Yeah. And you can see, he, you know, he had no pretensions, but other than these kind of soft things, uh, the discipline, the discipline to pass on deals that don't make sense, Um, to be judicious, so there's that. I think it takes a bit of experience. How they communicate is incredibly important. Sometimes you're lucky their letters are testament to it. One of the things I was going to say is, and it gets really underestimated, is it compounds. So people underestimate it, right? We know that people in markets overestimate in the short run and underestimate in the long run, like the power of compounding, right? Otherwise, they would never go to cash with their equities, right? So with the power of some of these CEOs, like Jeff Bezos, right? You could have waited till 2010 to know that he was good. And you still have done fine. Or Warren Buffett, right? You could have, Mm -hmm. after 20 years, said, okay, well, you know, I missed it. Because it's already up 20x, but guess what? It was going to go up another 30x or whatever it did, 20x again. And so the runway is incredibly long when the alignment is there. Costco would be an example of this with Jim Senegal. Um, mm-hmm. Walmart would be an example of that Buffett himself said he he saw Walmart in the 80s and then he, he said I missed it but Walmart right. compounded for another 20 years right at an right. incredible rate so I actually would say um, you can even afford to be uh, not right off the marks you can come late mm-hmm. to this party and it's still okay right as long as you pay a sensible price and you have a long term orientation if you do get that call right, it is still going to work for you.
0: Right management and the right business model, right? Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, there, there's uh, if, if you don't have one or the other, uh, it seems uh, that it would be difficult to have successful investment over time. Um, I want to shift over to the risk component. We talked about it earlier uh, and in uh, your upbringing in Africa, Coast, um, sort of giving you a different view on risk than perhaps some of your peers. Um, I'd love you to talk about risk in general, how you think about risk at a portfolio level potentially, uh, and then any um, any unique uh, insight that you can bring to the way that you view risk in general.
1: So um, there's risks at a portfolio level where you're saying, okay, what are the exposures that I hold? Um, are they diversified? Are they overlapping in which ways? Um, whether they are macro factors like, you know, inflation, Um, whether it's um, not necessarily macro, but, you know, a bet on premiumization, like consumer uh, upgrading their spend. Um, And then you, you really try and take a step back and say, okay, am I replicating exposures, whether it's geographic and whatnot? So that's one way to think about risk, right? Then there's a scenario analysis approach to risk, which is what's imaginable and what's not, right? Right. Right. And a lot of people, you know, we know where the markets are now. People were always concerned about how the markets might uh, turn and the regime change that we're now kind of seeing, if that might happen. And, they, you know, they're usually unidimensional about it, right? None of them were thinking you know, supply chains going in reverse, critical supply chain going in reverse or deglobalization, right? I don't think it's mm-hmm. actually deglobalization, but the direction, right? And so it's like, when we think about risk, we also try and think about what are these different scenarios? Um, a case in point, the the corona, right? Now, we, I didn't imagine corona, right? But I had read stuff about a pandemic before corona happened, right? So it's not a black swan. People say it's a black swan. It's not a black swan, right? Um, the financial crisis of 08 was not a black swan. But people sure. fa- people's failure to imagine um, is why um, I think being like an immigrant helps because, you know, people talk about war in Ukraine and they act like it's the first war. No, there's a lot of wars going on concurrently, right? And you think it's more important because, of, uh, because it's in Europe. But right. the... The visibility that was available with regards to the tensions and the directions with the Ukraine, even before 2015 with Crimea or Georgia before in the, in the, in the late aughts, um, if you did not know that tensions existed, right, um, that's something else, right? And, and, and the narratives, the ability to divorce yourself from those, that helps, right? Because you're like, okay, well... I know where there are wars. I know what happens when there are wars. I also know you should invest through wars, right? I know inflation happens when there's war. Governments spend, right? And, and, and from personal experience all the way through books. If you go to, uh, there's a book by Philip Fisher called Common Stocks and Uncommon Profit. I don't know if you've heard of this book. Yes. So there's a whole chapter there about do's and don'ts for investors. And there's a don't that says, don't sell your equities. In fact, buy more on the fear of war. And here's why. Right. So it's like, I don't have to imagine as much, you know, but part of risk management is recognizing the distribution of potential scenarios, but also trying to think about, okay, what's kind of on the other side of that, that people are afraid to, 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 to face, right? So people will say Taiwan is more at risk. I would argue Taiwan is less at risk. You know, the biggest risk is actually the U.S. trying to isolate China. And that's another reason why China wouldn't want to do something on like Taiwan. They'll do it on their own time. They're not gonna do it because Russia attacked Ukraine is so silly. Um right. you know, inflation, that's more common. Um, the US dollar as a reserve currency, people, it's hard for them to imagine that it won't be, but it won't be. Right. The idea that that I I don't know when, but the percentage of US dollars sure. as a percent of reserves, it can only go down. Right. right. Like So, therefore, like what could be more certain, right? It can't be more in 30 years. So, guess what it will be? It will be less, right? But it's hard for people to see that because they're married to this version of the world, right? Um, So, yeah, so that's what I would say. Like, when we think about risk, those are the dimensions. If you own the right businesses, though, and with the right management, that's the best protection you can have because businesses are dynamic and entrepreneur led businesses, which statistically, Uh, or at least where there's ownership and alignment, um, they outperform, right? And so even if you look through the 70s and you look at what Buffett did well through the 70s, well, how did he do it? High return on investment capital businesses, and he talks about why, right? In the short run, your commodities do well, but in the long run, they don't outperform these businesses, right? The question is whether this business is able to grow its intrinsic value, and did you pay a reasonable price for it? Because if you pay too much, and as high inflation or stagflation, it's going to re-rate. But if you didn't pay a crazy price, you still do okay. And there's not an alternative of going to cash. If there's high inflation, it's not going to help you. You can't go to fixed income either. That's a disaster. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's about being judicious, right?
0: It's, makes a lot of sense on Um, Maybe just to conclude, where is the top area that you're currently finding opportunities or what has you the most excited right now? Well, it it feels like um, March 2020 in some
1: ways, when you look at the collapse of the prices for whether it's some of these growth names, some of these small cap growth or mid cap, you know, right. kind of like 10 to 20, 25 billion. If you look at the EFI, E-fee, right, EFI is down, I'm guessing like 8, 8, 9%. Well, what's down the most? It's infotech, information technology, that's down 24%. Consumer discre- uh, discretionary is down 20 Industrials are down 17, right? In that mix, you're gonna have some names that are down 60, right? Right. So there are very great companies that are going to be available and are available at great prices, right? Last Mm -hmm. year, China collapsed, but the rest of the world was still soaring. Now the prices are correcting. So Japan, some Japanese companies are better buys than some Chinese companies, even though China and the UK statistically are dirt cheap. The point Mm -hmm. is they might statistically be cheaper than something on a PE, But long-term compounding is about what you get for what you give, right?
0: Great. Well, why don't we call it there, Ome? I appreciate you taking all the time and walking us through uh, how you approach investments. Uh, Much appreciated. Thank you, man. My pleasure. forward-looking information is subject to risks uncertainties and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein our views are subject to change based on market conditions commissions trailing commissions management fees and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing the indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales redemptions distributions, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.